I thought we might begin with a little fun exercise. I'm going to mention 10 names, and you'll have to be on your honour now. I want you to think how many of those names have I heard of and do I know anything about? So here are the 10 names. Robert Rollock, John Livingston, James Durham, Robert Blair, Hugh Binning, William Guthrie, David Dixon, James Guthrie, George Gillespie, Alexander Henderson. How many of you have heard of the whole ten? John Rawlinson, put your hand down. <laughs> John's the general manager of the Banner of Truth. <laughs> He gets no kudos. If he hadn't known those 10, he would have had to have had a little chat afterwards. <laughs> How many of you knew nine? Eight? Pretty good. Seven? Six? Five? Four. Well done, Pam. Four? Okay. Three? Two? One? Zero? <laughs> Honesty is always the best policy. <laughs> These men and many others, they were all Scots, were as able and as godly than their better-known English counterparts. John Owen, the perhaps greatest of the great pastor theologians of the English Puritans, considered William Guthrie one of the greatest divines that ever wrote. He only wrote one book, Christian Saving Interest. Owen considered it to be a book without parallel, a book that showed what a profound, insightful, godly divine William Guthrie was. Ian Murray makes this comment about the Scottish Puritans. Now, I'm going to explain in a moment why they were actually not Puritans. They were Presbyterians and Covenanters. And there is a reason why it would, I think, be principally wrong to call them Puritans, though I understand why most people do. Ian Murray wrote this, although not to be used as models in all things, their lives were centered on the Word of God and prayer, and they enjoyed real communion with Christ. They knew the Holy Spirit and believed in his power to change lives and nations. And I think that beautifully sums up these men, the counterparts in Scotland to the English Puritans, whose lives and whose ministries and whose literature adorned not only the middle decades of the 17th century, but have been such a profound blessing, not just to Scotland, but to the world beyond Scotland. Let me make two preliminary um, points, observations. 
The first is this. Puritanism is a very imprecise term. It really is questionable whether the word Puritan is actually a useful way to understand the Scottish covenanters and their principles. And let me explain why. The term Puritan does not indicate allegiance to a particular form of church government. But the Scottish covenanters were passionately committed to Presbyterian church government. And they suffered enormously for defending Presbyterian church government. To call the Covenanters Puritans has a tendency to neglect the importance that they placed on Presbyterian principles. And maybe you're thinking, well, why on earth were they so committed to Presbyterian principles? Well, for this simple reason, they believed passionately that this is how God wills to order the life of his church on earth. If God has willed it and has revealed and decreed that this is how it ought to be, then you are to give yourself wholly to seeing that will of God realized in the life of his church on earth. It would be very strange to many people in our day to hear that there actually were Christians who were willing to lay down their lives for church government. But here's the thing that you need to remember. Here is the thing. They were willing to lay down their life for Presbyterian principles because at the heart of those principles was this principle that Jesus Christ alone is the king and head of his church. His church is never to be subject to the state in any form. Jesus Christ is the sole king and head of the church. And this is why these men were willing, actually, to go to war, many of them, in order to defend the headship of Jesus Christ over his church. The second preliminary point is this. Puritanism was actually a relatively short-lived term in Scotland. It's used for the first time in England in 1564. It's used for the first time in Scotland in 1618. And there was a reason for that. In that year, 1618, the king... James VI of Scotland and the first of the United Kingdom, decided that now was the time to impose Episcopal order and government, worship and liturgy on the Church of Scotland. And he imposed by hook and by crook what are called the five articles of Perth. And these were five Episcopal uh, principles and practices. You had to kneel to receive the Lord's Supper. Uh, You had to observe Christmas Day and Easter Day. You had to be ordained by a bishop or your ordination was invalid. 
And he was seeking to conform the church in Scotland to the Episcopal half-reformed at best church in England. So, unlike their English counterparts, the Scots were never seeking to purify the church, to puritanize the church. They wanted the status quo. They believed their church had been puritanized at the Reformation. They were not Puritans, they were theological conservationists. They were Presbyterians. The English wanted the Church of England purified of its, its, its Roman Catholic um, practices that still lingered on in the life of the Church. But the Scots didn't have that. So the Scots were not Puritanizers. They were conservationists or conservators. Having said that, the Scots, Presbyterians or Covenanters, which may actually be the best way to think of the Scottish counterparts to the English Puritans, they did share with their English counterparts a number of deep-rooted theological convictions. And because our time is limited, and I'm keen to have a little time of Q&A at the end if possible, let me mention 10, 10 common convictions. Number one, the Scottish Covenanters prioritized the preaching of the Word of God and prayer in public worship. From the time of John Knox onwards, 1559-1560, the Scots has sought to remove what Knox called the dregs of popery from the service of the worship of God. The Scots, through Knox, had taken to heart Calvin's conviction, which wasn't Calvin's alone, but was actually commonplace amongst the magisterial reformers in the middle years of the 16th century. They had taken to heart that nothing is more perilous to our salvation than a preposterous worship of God. If you were to ask the reformers, why was there a reformation? Not one of them would begin where we would imagine they would begin. Not one of them would begin by saying we needed to recover the biblical truth of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Almost certainly, every single one of them, whoever you ask, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Martin Busser, Johannes Oikolampadius, whoever you ask, they would say to you, why was there a reformation? God was not being worshipped according to his will and his word. God first, we second. So in 1543, John Calvin wrote one of the finest Reformation treatises entitled On the Necessity of Reforming the Church. He wrote it as a kind of apologia 
for the reformed cause. And he dedicated it to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And he says in the preface to the treatise, if your majesty is asking why there was a reformation, and he actually mentions Luther by name, why God raised up Martin Luther in Wittenberg, here is the reason why there was a reformation. God was not being worshipped according to his word. And that conviction became embedded in Scotland when Knox returned to Scotland from Geneva, 1559, and continued for the next 70, 80, 90 years to be embedded in the thinking of the Reformed Church in Scotland. And their great desire was to keep the priority, the simplicity of divine worship at the heart of the life of the Church of Jesus Christ. The preaching of the word and prayer were to be the dominant notes that would mark out the worship of the people of God. These Scottish Presbyterians, these Scottish Covenanters, like their English counterparts, had become persuaded that worship is not a visual spectacle. It is a verbal, personal, existential, congregational, covenantal, deeply reverent encounter with God. That's what worship is. But this verbal, personal, existential, congregational, covenantal, reverent encounter with God was to be shaped and styled by sola scriptura, by scripture alone. The Scottish Covenanters all agreed with John Owen when he wrote in the second volume of his collected works. And if you go to John Rawlinson at the end, he'll give you a very good deal. Won't you, John, on the 16 volumes? Owen writes in volume two, God never allowed the will of the creature to decide how best to worship him. Worshipping God in ways not appointed by him is severely forbidden. The principle that the church has the power to institute and appoint anything or ceremony belonging to the worship of God other than what Christ himself has instituted, now notice this, is the cause of all the horrible superstitions and idolatry, of all the confusion, blood, persecutions, and wars that have arisen in the Christian world. So you ask John Owen, Brother Owen, why is the church in such a parlous state? Why is there so much confusion and disorder? Why are people at one another's throats who claim and profess to be the people of God. Why has all this happened? And Owen replies, because we are not worshipping God as he has commanded. We have allowed will worship to worm its way into the life of the church. 
And so the primary hallmark of the Scottish Covenanters, as, as with their counterparts in England, was that God is to be worshipped with reverence and in awe in accord with his revealed will in Holy Scripture. God takes his worship seriously. They would often quote Leviticus chapter 10 when Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire, unauthorized fire. They took it upon themselves to not limit themselves to what God had decreed concerning his worship. They thought this is a good idea. God likes fire. Let's give him fire. And God killed them. He killed them. He didn't say, well, I know you have a good heart. I know that you really at heart are, are, are good men. God slays them. He is placarding to his church. I take my worship seriously. I am a great God and a great king. Bow down and worship me, not as you imagine, but as, have I, but as I have willed. So that was the great hallmark of the Scottish Presbyterian covenanters that most people call Puritans. The second was this. They were principial Sabbatarians. They believed... I want to use the word passionately, passionately, but I'm sure they would be saying, Ian, that's too weak. (laughs) They believed with all their being in the perpetuity of the fourth commandment shorn of its temporary Jewish features. The Sabbath was a creation ordinance. It goes back not to Moses. It predates Adam. And honouring the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day, the whole day, by keeping it holy to the Lord, was probably the public identifiable mark of the Puritan era as a whole in England and of the Presbyterian covenanting counterpart in Scotland. That's why if you read the Westminster Larger Catechism, you'll find an astonishing amount of space devoted to the explication of the fourth commandment. They took seriously that God had set this day apart wholly to himself. And even to this present day, if you were to attend a Reformed church in Scotland that was meaningfully Reformed, there would be morning and evening worship. You could not conceivably be considered reformed if you didn't have an evening service of worship. Whether you were a Presbyterian or a Baptist, or a Congregationalist of some kind, Sabbatarianism, God-honoring, not joyless, dour, narrow-hearted Sabbatarianism, but delighting in God, worshipping him, rejoicing to be found with like-minded, like-hearted brothers and sisters, calling upon the name of the Lord as the day begins and as the day ends. This was embedded 
in the thinking and in the acting of these Scottish Presbyterian covenanters. A third distinguishing mark was this, and this was wholly aligned to the English Puritan mindset. Their prodigious learning was in the service of the pastoral care of God's church. John Owen, the English Puritan, became a theologian to be a better pastor. And the Scottish Presbyterian Covenanters had that same understanding. Theology was not for the academy. It wasn't for some uh, academic uh, individual to hide himself away in an upper room and, and to write treatise after treatise. Theology was for the people of God. Martin Busser, who so influenced John Calvin during his two and a half years in Strasbourg, 1538 to early 1541, wrote this, true theology is not theoretical, it is practical. The end of it is to live a godly life. If theology is not leading you to live a godly life, it isn't Christian. And this note, which became embedded in the Scottish tradition, meant that up until, I think, round about the year 1975, before you could teach theology in the four ancient universities in Scotland, you had to have served at least five years as a pastor in a congregation. It would be inconceivable to our Puritan forebears from the English side and the Presbyterian Covenanters from the Scottish side, that any man would be allowed to teach theology who hadn't himself been proven as an effective pastor-preacher. And one of the tragedies, I think, of seminaries today, this side of the pond and my side of the pond, is that we are so concerned that the academy think well of us that we are far more inclined to appoint someone who is brilliant than someone who is very able but who is godly and proven as a pastor teacher in a local church. A fourth mark that noted these Scottish Presbyterian covenanters was that they were valiant for truth men. Let me give you two examples of it. Some of you at least would have heard the name of Andrew Melville. John Knox never founded any presbyteries. They were there in embryo. Knox was there right at the beginning. He understood that if you're building a house, you don't start with the roof, you start with the foundations. Andrew Melville really was Knox's successor, and he is the architect of Scottish historic Presbyterianism. He was a brilliant man. Um, in his spare time, he would sit and write Latin poetry. Scotland was on the edge of Europe, but the education in Scotland 
remarkably, was recognized throughout Europe as being an education par excellence. And Andrew Melville had gone through parts of uh, France in particular, and he, he was just a brilliant man. He was equally at home in Latin, Hebrew, Greek, French, German. He could turn his hand to anything. He became the effective leader of the Scottish Presbyterians in the 1580s, 1590s, when King James VI, this is before the Union of the Crowns in 1603, when James went back to, went down to London and became James I of the United Kingdom. And in 1596, James was beginning to flex his kingly muscles. He, he, he had promised the Presbyterians, I will stand with you. I will stand with you in Reformation truth. Those were his own words. Rarely trust a king. <laughs> or a president. Or a prime minister. Andrew Melville did what you never did. Andrew Melville walked over to the king. To a king. Took him by the shirt. And he said, King James, your God, silly vassal. People just thought, who on earth is this man? <laughs> Sorry about that, but you just were nearest. <laughs> and he said to James, in this realm, your majesty, you are my sovereign and I honor you. But in the church of Jesus Christ, you're not a king. You're not a lord. You're a member. And nothing more than that. And James was later heard to say, Presbyterianism agrees as much with monarchy as God does with the devil. Andrew Melville was willing to risk his life in confronting this king because he was seeking to intrude his way into the headship of Jesus Christ over his church. When James did become king in 1603 of the United Kingdom, he, he, invites, he, he invites Melville down to London. His hope is that Melville will be overwhelmed by the grandeur of the court. Presbyterians are rarely, rarely impressed. <laughs> Melville would have nothing to do with episcopacy. It's not according to the will of God for his church as we read the word of God. And he's given a few days in, 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 in a nice apartment to think things through. And a little foolishly, Melville begins to write Latin comic poetry about the king. The king hears about it. Melville spends three years in the Tower of London and then he's banished to France. They wouldn't even let him back when he was dying. He dies in obscurity, we don't know. We think he dies around 1625. My point is that these Presbyterian covenanters, like their English counterparts, although probably more pugnaciously, you know when the British army went into war up until 
probably the early 1900s, the Scottish regiments were put in front. They put the fear of death into the people they were fighting. The Scots were willing to put truth before consequences. And then a second example is in 1638. James VI of Scotland, the first of the United Kingdom, dies in 1625. His son, Charles, Charles I, we're now into Charles III. We hope he might be a little better than the previous two. Charles I comes to the throne and he decides it's time to make Scotland conform to England. And so he seeks to impose Episcopal government and Episcopal liturgy, set read prayers on the Scottish Church. 23rd of July, 1637, a market trader called Jenny Geddes and other women go along to the High Kirk of St. Giles in Edinburgh because on that day the king had decreed that the prayer book service would be read. And as the dean of the High Kirk begins to read the service, Jenny Geddes gets up, picks up the little stool she was sitting on, and she throws it at him. And she says to him, Why do you dare to say the mass in my ears? The devil give you colic. <laughs> now, the Anglican prayer book wasn't celebrating the Mass. There was no Mass on the horizon. Charles I would have replied, I'm, I'm not restoring Romanism. I'm simply seeking to impose Episcopalianism. Some modern academics try to uh, make much of this. They say this was an overreaction of this market trader, Jenny Geddes. I'm, I'm not saying she was right to throw her stool at the man. Um, well, I'm not saying she was wrong. <laughs> There was no mass in the prayer book, but here's the thing, and this is what you need to remember. The feet of popery were at the door. She wasn't stupid. She knew where the trajectory would be leading. That's how Satan always works in seeking to deflect the church from its calling and to infiltrate his insidious ways into the life of the church. This isn't the mass. Come on, don't be, don't, don't be overly scrupulous. But she was right. And these Presbyterians and Covenanters would later in the 1660s, 1670s, 1680s, when Charles II came to the throne, would actually lay down their lives for the headship of Jesus Christ and his church. They were willing to lose their homes, their churches, their wives and their children. They were willing to die 
for the sake of gospel truth. They were willing to put truth before consequences. You see, the consequences were not simply that they would be fined, although some were fined. The consequences were, after, 15, after 1660, if you refuse to bend, if you refuse to accept the headship of the king over the church, you'll be classed as traitors. And many of them were hung, they were drawn, and they were quartered. And sometimes their parts sent back to their wives. Truth before consequences. That's easy to say. It's harder to live out. A fifth note of the Scottish Presbyterian covenanters is that they were experiential divines. John Owen was asked to write a foreword to James Durham's commentary on the Song of Songs. James Durham was one of the great luminaries of the Scottish Presbyterian covenanting uh, tradition. Uh, he, he was a man of, of immense learning, but he was a man of profound, deep piety. And initially, John Owen was reluctant to write a foreword to Durham's commentary on the Song of Songs because he writes, I judged such a labor needless on account of his reputation, piety, and abilities in the church of God. How many of you heard of James Durham? One or two or three or four. John Owen said, he doesn't need me to commend his work in the Song of Songs. The Church of God knows how profound, how able, how pious this man of God is. But he does go on to write a commendation. And in his commendation, he commends Durham as one of good learning, sound judgment, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. These Scottish Presbyterian covenanters were men of profound conviction because they were men of deep personal piety. John Owen was also asked to commend a little book by William Guthrie that I mentioned earlier, The Christian's Great Interest. It's the only book that William Guthrie ever wrote. It's a short book. It's on Christian assurance, what it means to be a Christian, and how we can be sure that we truly are Christians. And John Owen wrote this. The author I take to have been one of the greatest divines that ever wrote. John Owen, if you read any of Owen's works, 
the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth of what he had read just staggers you. He'd read the church fathers. He'd read the Latin fathers, the Greek fathers, the medieval fathers, all in, all in Latin and Greek. He had read the, 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 the Reformation fathers. And here he says, this author I take to have been one of the greatest divines that ever wrote, it is my vade mecum. How's your Latin? Literally, my go with me, my handbook, along with my Sedan New Testament, says Owen. Sedan, the place where the little New Testament had been published in 16-something. Um, along with my Sedan New Testament, I carry it with me wherever I go. That's what John Owen, the prince of the Puritans, could say about William Guthrie. But I would guess that most of you, while you've never heard of William Guthrie or James Durham or Alexander Henderson, you will have heard of Samuel Rutherford. We have 365 extant letters of Rutherford. Easy to remember, 365. 222 of the letters were written while he was in exile in the northeast of Aberdeen. He refused to yield to the local bishop. He refused to give obeisance to the local bishop, and so he was exiled. But what Satan intended for evil, God turns for good. 222 of the 365 letters um, were written during this two, year of two years of exile. And it's in Rutherford's letters you get a taste of the experiential piety that wasn't unique to Rutherford, but that was commonplace amongst men like Durham and Guthrie and, and Henderson and Rollock and others besides. Let me give you a little taste of Rutherford's piety. Rutherford was probably the most brilliant of the Scottish covenanting Presbyterians. Rutherford was at home writing abstruse Latin theology. He was lionized throughout Europe as an intellect that was just astonishing. But listen to these words that he would write to people who wrote to him. People who were in distress mentally, bodily. People who had lost children. He wrote in one letter, give Christ your virgin love. You cannot put your love and heart into a better hand. Oh, if ye knew him and saw his beauty, your love, your liking, your heart, your desires would close with him and cleave to him. Oh, fair sun and fair moon and fair stars and fair flowers and fair roses, and fair lilies, and fair creatures, but, oh, ten thousand thousand times fairer, Lord Jesus. What a fair one. What an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Jesus. Put the beauty of ten thousand thousand worlds of paradises into one. It would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved 
Christ. It's hard to read Rutherford's letters without being deeply affected by the intimacy that you read and feel as he opens his heart to parishioners and others who have written to him. And he's always seeking to hold up to them Jesus Christ. Rutherford had this conviction, and it was very much embedded in the Scots. And I can't say above all in Owen, because I don't know the other Puritans as well as I might know Owen. But I think in the, genera the generality of the Puritans, that the great pastoral need of God's people, whatever their circumstances and situations, their great pastoral need is to have Jesus Christ lifted up before them. See how great he is. A sixth feature is that they were divine right Presbyterians, de iuri divino Presbyterianism. God ordained it, that's the way it must be. The congregationalism of many of the English Puritans appalled the Scots. The Scots could not conceive that the church could be ordered in any other way than it was ordered in Scotland. It's our way or it's no way because our way is God's way. The Scots were intransigent. They are not to be imitated in this. Now, I don't mean we're not to imitate their Presbyterianism. <laughs> we're not to imitate their intransigence. They wrongly separated the invisible church from the visible church. They said God alone knows the invisible church. That's the elect. Uh, the visible church, well, um, anyone who... Uh, in any way credibly says they're a Christian, they can belong to the visible church. But they reduced the thought of credible profession to simply a mere outward attendance at the means of grace. And what that meant ultimately in Scotland was that people could be members of local congregations by virtue of simply living in the parish where those congregations were. Instead of saying, yes, we don't know the hearts and minds of men and women, but their lives should say something real about them. Not simply that they're not scandalous, but that they have tokens of true godliness in their lives, that they gladly confess Christ, that they're seeking to live under the lordship of Christ and raise their children to the praise and glory of Christ. I'm a divine right Presbyterian. I, I believe the Bible teaches we should all be Presbyterians. <laughs> I do, uh, I do. But here's the thing, here's the thing. I have dear friends who outshine me in every conceivable way in life. We don't think that. Out of conviction. So what do we do? Do we abandon our convictions? No, we don't abandon them. But we realize there is something 
greater and grander than church polity. The new birth unites us together. The adoption as sons and daughters into the family of God unites us. The same heavenly destination unites us. The same heavenly Father to whom we pray unites us. The same Savior whose blood atoned for us unites us. And the Scots couldn't see that. It's one of the reasons why the Westminster Assembly really ultimately failed in its, in its desire and aim because the Scots couldn't bend. They couldn't see past their way of ordering the church. And that's a huge issue for us today. Without abandoning our convictions and distinctives, how do we say to this world, we're one family, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all? Without abandoning our convictions, whatever the convictions may be, if we've been washed in the same blood, we need somehow, and it's, it, it'll take great effort, we need somehow to say to this world, there is infinitely more that unites me to my brothers and sisters than divides me from them. A seventh thing, just quickly, they were unembarrassed supernaturalists. John Knox was once asked, how was it that the Reformation came so swiftly and so transformingly to Scotland? And his reply was this, God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance. There's a wonderful story. I hope it's true. I think there are certainly elements of truth in it. It may be wholly true, but it's been passed down to us. At the Westminster Assembly, which was phenomenally diverse, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Independents, hypothetical universalists, there were six hypothetical universalists in the Westminster Assembly. And there were Erastians, Men who believed that the state, that really meant the king, but the state should have ultimate authority over the life of the church. And one of the Erastians, called John Selden, stood up and gave this brilliant, um, learned discourse on why the state should have the ultimate authority over the life of the church. And when he finished speaking and sat down, Samuel Rutherford noticed that one of the Scottish commissioners, George Gillespie, he was a young man, 27 or so at the time, maybe even younger, had been writing the whole time. And Rutherford says to George Gillespie, George, stand up and defend the right of King Jesus over his church. Gillespie stands up. And he gives this tour de force exposition of the headship of Jesus Christ. John Selden turns to a neighbor and said, that young man has destroyed all my learning these past 30 years. 
Now, here's the thing. As they were leaving the assembly chamber, a number of the men came over to see what George Gillespie had been writing the whole time. And he had been writing three words in Latin. Again, 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 and again. Da lucem domine. Da lucem domine. Da lucem domine. Give light, O Lord. Give light, O Lord. You see, people think Reformed Christians are, I don't know, anti-supernaturalists. We don't really believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe passionately in the power of the Holy Spirit. I was being interviewed earlier this week about cessationism and continuationism. And I said, I'm a continuationist. Who's a cessationist? I believe in the present, powerful, almighty working of God, the Holy Spirit, in the life of the church and in the life of the whole world. They were unembarrassed supernaturalists. Number eight, just quickly, they were convinced but generic Calvinists. The Westminster Confession is an ecumenical document. In the Westminster Minutes, um, this is one bit I know very well, I did part of my dissertation on this, page 151 in the Westminster Minutes. They're discussing the order of God's eternal decrees, chapter 3 of the Confession. And George Gillespie, the young man who wrote Dalukem Domine, Dalukem Domine, there are all kinds of people with different views on the order of the decrees, and Gillespie says, let us frame the statement so that each man may take his own sense. What? That's, that's no way to engage in theological debate. Let us frame the sentence so the supralapsarians can say, we're with it. The infralapsarians can say, we're with it. The non-lapsarians could say, we're with it. The point is, these Scots and their English counterparts understood that Calvinism wasn't monochrome. There are, like in our times today, that there are Presbyterian Calvinists, there are Baptist Calvinists. There's, I think I've even heard there's Methodist Calvinists. <laughs> somewhere. Somewhere. But Calvinism is, is generic. And we need to remember that. I'm just conscious of my time. Number nine, the Scots became divided over gospel practice. To cut a long story short, Oliver Cromwell sees King Charles I beheaded. The Scots are appalled. They decide that they will make contact with Charles I's son, who's living in Holland. They say to him, if you promise to make Presbyterianism uh, confirmed in Scotland and trialed in England, we'll send an army against Cromwell. Oh, the king said, I'll, I'll promise you anything. Don't believe what kings tell you. <laughs> the king said, I'll do whatever you want. The Scots raise an army. They go to England. And Oliver's just waiting. He smashes the Scots. And the Scots are then in a quandary. 
What do we do now? Most of the Scots, probably the greater majority, thought, okay, let's continue to trust the promises of this son of Charles I in the hope that someday uh, he will regain the crown in some way. Other Scots, like Samuel Rutherford, said, don't be a fool. You can't trust a king further than you can throw him. And the Scots became divided. The covenanting cause was split. And so when Charles comes to the throne in 1660, he immediately turned and tears up the promises he made to the Scots. Passes two years later the Act of Uniformity, which meant 2,000 Puritans were ejected from their livings in England and about 350 in Scotland. The devil comes to divide and conquer. I've thought about this. I teach about this. I I just don't know where I would have stood. I I have sympathy with those who say, well, let's hope for the best. But, you know, actually, if you read church history, it's, it's the Rutherfords who were right. Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Would we have time to develop? But the last thing I want to say is possibly the most important. Notwithstanding all their blemishes, the Scottish Presbyterian Covenanters understood the primacy of Christian love. John, do we have in the bookstall Hugh Binning, Christian Love? Not at the minute. You could, it's, it's, it's a small book that you can get from Banner Office in, in the USA. Listen to Hugh Binning. This is the epidemical disease of the present time. Love cooled and passion heated. Whence proceed all the feverish distempers, contentions, wars, and divisions which have brought the church of God near to expiring. When the Lord Jesus restores Peter, John 21, Peter whose faith had collapsed so tragically, I would think if you asked many Christians, why did Peter's faith collapse so tragically? I think the answer for most would be he became cowardly, and he did become cowardly. He had thought more highly of himself than he should have thought, and that's absolutely true. But when Jesus restores Peter, he doesn't say, Peter, from now on, do you promise to be courageous and bold and unyielding and unflinching? He says, Peter, do you love me? Jesus is going to the heart of the problem. The reason why Peter did what he did was because he did not love Christ the way he thought he loved him. Every sin has its origin in a lack of love to Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Every sin, without exception, has its origin in our failure to love the Savior 
as we ought to love him. The thing is that when you're caught up in controversy, that can be known notionally, but difficult to practice meaningfully. And yet, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That somehow, somehow, by the grace of God, by the intercession of Christ, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, somehow we're able to transcend our little differences. You know, brothers and sisters, there are no Presbyterians in heaven. And there are no Baptists in heaven. And there are no Methodists in heaven. There are only the twice born, the blood redeemed, the ransomed, healed, the restored, and the forgiven. Somehow, we need to show this world what the Scots actually failed to show the world. That by this will all men know you are my disciples. That you love one another. And that doesn't mean you turn a blind eye to one another's sins or theological aberrations, if you think there are any. It doesn't mean you can't engage in vigorous debate and, and uh, hold each other to account. It doesn't mean any of that. It means you do it, though, knowing this. He's been washed in the same blood. The Father has loved him. The Son has died for him. The Spirit indwells him. Time for one question. <laughs> oh, none. For the Scots, it was the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection. Um, there were some who believed the Sabbath following the pattern of Genesis 1 was Saturday evening to Sunday evening. But the greater majority, I think, it was uh, the 24 hours of the Lord's Day on the Sunday day at their resurrection. I'm sorry, I thought I had 10 minutes, but um, thank you for your patience.